Welcome to Different From The Other Kids, a weekly talk show for parents with challenging children with host Angela Sunis, a parent whose teen was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Each episode, Angela will have a discussion with an individual or professional within the mental health community. Different from the other kids, season one, a production of Marketing Maven. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Different from the Other Kids, a podcast for parents with challenging children. I'm here tonight talking to Julie. Welcome, Julie. Thank you, Angie. <laughs> um, I was finding this really interesting um, in the Toronto Star the other day, uh, if only because uh, Julie's story, and we're going to be speaking to her husband, Ian, in another episode, and then we'll be speaking to them together in another episode. Um, but what was really interesting to me was their plight of trying to find somebody that is going to help them uh, with their daughter uh, who experiences uh, different shifts and different episodes of um, mentally ill type behavior and they've been going oh to everywhere to try and get help and have gotten very little. Uh, So I found this um, article in the Toronto Star excellent because it totally captured what it is that's kind of happening in um, at least the province of Ontario as far as I can tell. So according to the Toronto Star, uh, in an article by Laura Armstrong, Sunline Airlines turned around a plane about 45 minutes into a flight Friday uh, Friday morning after a passenger allegedly made a direct threat to the aircraft. So they had two fighter jets for NORAD that they dispatched to escort the flight carrying 183 passengers and a crew of six back to Pearson Airport. This young man, who's 25, according to his father, has suffered from depression for years and needs help in both, for both mental and health issues, and he has a gambling problem. Uh, this is according to the father. Uh, it's a quote. He said, he and his wife, Alam, have called the police on their son 23 times after verbal altercations, hoping to get him some treatment. Uh, another quote from him is, unfortunately, they didn't help. Every time I told them he had illness, he has mental problems, nobody helped. So dad is now relieved. This is unbelievable to me, but I can kind of seeing it, see it happening, uh, that he's actually relieved his son will be assessed by a hospital. He's under a 72-hour hold right now, and he's also out uh, on bail for $1,000 um, because he hopes that they'll be able to do something to help. So I guess my frustration, and Julie will <laughs> hear me when I say, I cannot believe that it actually took an incarceration of this young man for him to get the help. Julie and I have had conversations um, in me trying to help her to get uh, some of the resources that are available around only because I've been through part of the process. And, um, yeah, she just keeps coming up with nothing, brick walls. She goes somewhere all she gets is a no, slam door. Um, and her child is still really undiagnosed. Uh, she's now medicated, but that's very recent. And um, it's been, well, I don't, I've never heard of anybody as parents going through what Julie and Ian have been through. So I'm, I'm very happy that they're here. I'm very sad for their story. And um, if you don't mind, Julie, I'd love to, um, if we could take it back to, uh, you just giving us a general synopsis of, you know, 
how it is that you knew at one point or another that you were having uh, difficulty uh, with this child and, and kind of take it from there, from kind of a childhood perspective, if there is one, or when it kind of showed up? I think that somewhere around the age of two, we saw signs that something was not quite right, but we didn't act on anything because you kind of go into denial as a parent and you think, well, it's just a phase, it's just, uh, it'll pass. Um, but I think around the age of two, I think my first sign, and I'll never forget it, was around the age of two, um, I was doing Sophie's hair and I finished doing her hair and I came around the front of her and I knelt down in front of her and I looked her in the eye and I said, oh, you look so beautiful. And I remember she scowled at me and she put her hands in her hair and she messed it up and she stomped out of the room. And it was my first indication that there was something not quite right. And from there, we always noticed that she wasn't able to have friends, uh, maintain friendships. She struggled in school. And we weren't really sure of all of the struggles because we had her in the Montessori program up until the age of eight. And we sort of thought that she was thriving in that program. And then we put her over into the public school system where we realized that she was not thriving. And she was um, way before way below grade level, um, at which time we started looking for assessments. We put her in a tutoring program through Oxford, um, trying to bring her up to grade level. She just wasn't able to catch up. So that's very common to have a learning disability. Did they tell you, was there a learning disability that they diagnosed or that they told you about? No. Oh. No. So they, they get, nobody gives you anything, do they? No. <laughs> you got nothing. No. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. So finally, in 2011, um, we sought out a neuropsychologist to have a neuropsych evaluation done. Um, and the results of that were many. Um, we learned that she had um, very slow process, processing disorder. She was in the fourth percentile very slow working memory. Um, they said she was um, suffering from anxiety and depression. She was extremely rigid in her thought structure. Even though she would see that a strategy was unsuccessful, she would never veer from that strategy. She would stay stuck on the same course. She wasn't able mm -hmm. to look outside of that and, and try something new. Um, okay. um, so at what point would you say that things... I would assume that it escalated at one point as she became a teenager, I'm guessing. She was always explosive, uh, and she was she always had, she could be unkind to me, certainly, and to her dad, but more so to me probably just because I was more available to her. And she, I can't remember now what she used to say, but I always remember the way she used to make me feel. And I can remember, you know, being in the shower in the morning and having this great anxiety about being able to get through that shower before she woke up. Because if she woke up and I was unavailable to her, she would be in a rage that I wasn't there and I didn't hear her call. And so I just have this feeling of anxiety that I always felt if I wasn't doing what she wanted me to be doing or I wasn't available to her. Uh-huh. Um... 
Okay, so if it is that, um, it's okay. Sorry, that's all right. Go ahead. At what point did it escalate that you knew this was a that you had your hands full to the point where you needed um, more help than tutors? Well, it's it's a process. Um, mm-hmm. I remember going to our just GP and being in her office and crying and saying, you know, something's wrong. I don't know what it is. And um, she sent me to a pediatrician. And I think she was around nine at that point. And so the pediatrician put her on Prozac, which didn't help at all. And throughout it all, I mean, she just keeps escalating and she is... Her social life is just deteriorating. She's having drama everywhere. She just cannot um, connect with people. She can't function socially. And the more that drama that she encounters outside of her home, the more drama she brings into the home. And it's just, it just keeps going and going to the point where she's, you know, putting holes in walls and screaming and um, she's hitting. Mm -hmm. She's threatening the dog. She's threatening herself. And when she's when she threatens, if you don't mind, what is like specifically, what is threatening for your family? What what is that? Well, it came to you know her grabbing a knife out of the drawer and you know sort of slyly looking at it and saying, "Oh, this one will do," in a way where you know she was holding it up to you like she was going to stab you with it. Um, she held a ice skate over her head and threatened her dad. Um, yeah, okay. So many. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah. So what kind of, you've gone through, uh, give me a synopsis of the last year, because you and I have been in contact only in the last year, and it has been unbelievable to me mm-hmm. what it is that you've had to do, where it is that you've gone, to the extent that you have gone, and still gotten nothing. So I want I want to make sure that we hit the right point here, and that is that you've gone to a bunch of different places that I would have thought would have been able to help you at one point, uh, and haven't received really any concrete help. Mm-hmm. So if if you can just even in the last year go through maybe some of the places or some of the kinds of places that you've been to, I know you and I have had conversations. I've sent you to a couple places for as a resource, and still nothing kind of comes up. And maybe finish it with your last episode at the hospital of trying to get her in. Okay. We finally got access to a psychiatrist in, okay, early 2012, And she prescribed um, Abilify and Prozac, um, which did stabilize her for a period of time. We probably had about nine months of stability. And then it seemed that at some point that medication just stopped working. And she started to escalate to a great deal of violence and... Um, she was just falling apart everywhere. So when you say violence, sorry, what, what would that entail? Just because everyone's idea of violence sometimes is different. Just like everyone's idea of threatening is something different. Was it, um, like would she throw stuff? Oh yes. Okay. Throwing, hitting, punching. Okay. Uh, there was a lot of, um, self-loathing. That's terrible. Um, yeah, she would threaten to kill herself. She didn't want to live. She was going to cut herself. 
I'm sorry to go into that kind of detail to ask you to. Mm -hmm. I think there's just a lot of people that are going through this, and it's lonely and difficult and mm -hmm. terrible. And I, th I, I appreciate you sharing your story. It's very brave and really is very appreciated because I do believe there are people that are sitting there by themselves, not able to have a conversation with anybody about it. So thank you for sharing that much. No problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so after about nine months on the um, cocktail of medication, and I'm sorry, she was also on Adderall because um, at some point during all of this, she was also diagnosed with ADHD, which um, she was put in a private school and the teacher would be in touch and say, she, you know, she couldn't keep her on task. She would just lose focus. She was, was not able to accomplish anything. So we had her on Abilify, Prozac, and Adderall. Um, which felt like quite a cocktail to us. And even though she was, after nine months, she was on this cocktail of medication, we were seeing things get really out of hand again to the point where one night we had to call the police because um, she was threatening us. So we left the home. And then once we'd left the home, she was calling us on our cell phones to say she was going to kill herself. So therefore, as parents, you have to mm -hmm. plug back in. And we had to come home. And how old is this person again? She just is 13. Yeah, just so that... Everyone yeah. knows, yeah. So um, we went back to the psychiatrist that was prescribing the medication and said, this is not working because we're having to call the police. This is what's happening in our home. And we said that we thought perhaps we should take her off all of this medication, and she agreed. So we weaned her um, at the psychiatrist's Which is always delightful. Ugh. That's awful. And what showed up was completely intolerable and unbearable, and it was it has it was a two to three month nightmare of just the craziest time we have ever endured. So um, during that time, we were calling Coast, which is the local crisis line. Just and just so that everybody knows, Coast is uh, made up. It's a special unit that is made up of a um, not uniformed. What is the word I'm looking for? Not uniformed. He's a, a, a police officer that is um, in plain clothes and a social worker as well. And they come in as a team. If it is that the person in question that they're calling about requires hospitalization, then the social worker is able to do intake. Um, and if it is that they require incarceration for whatever reason of what's going on in the home, then the police officer is there. So they're, they work in tandem. I've met them uh, through two different incidences. Um, and one of them was just a house call, actually, when my daughter got back from the hospital. And um, in my experience, they were excellent. Mm -hmm. Were they really great with you, too? Uh, well, it took three or four phone calls before... Before you got them. Well, no, before I could actually get them to our home, uh, because they would, you know, talk to you on the phone, and then they would say, okay, well, let us talk to Sophie. So um, we would de-escalate the situation, and they would tell us they didn't have a team available, that if things flared up again, that we needed to call 911. And in two cases, we did do that, uh, but... We had them attend once, and then another time um, they were really busy. They couldn't get anybody out. So they said they'd get there as soon as they could. By the time an hour passed, Sophie had gone to sleep, so I would call them back and say there's no sense coming tonight. Um, so it took three or four calls to coast before I finally had a team come to our home, and they were fantastic. And it was Finally, through that contact, that we got in contact with a nurse practitioner who worked for Coast and for 
another service in our city. And she finally called me one day, and uh, we had about a 10-minute conversation on the phone, and she said, this is the medication I think to be on, and she dropped off the prescription the next day. That's unbelievable. I've never heard of such a thing. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, thank God something finally gave. Yeah. But, yeah, I've never heard of such a thing. So she prescribed Zoloft and Seroquel, and it has changed things dramatically. Uh, Things are not perfect, but it certainly calmed things down and de-escalated the violent and suicidal sort of chatter. Right, but that's new, right? That's only in the last how many weeks? That's the last three weeks. Okay, and then you also had an opportunity, which is fantastic. I'm so happy for you. This is the most respite care I think you've had uh, ever um, because uh, this because uh, Sophie is so attached uh, to her parents and has a uh, difficulty um, detaching. Um, this is the first time she's actually really gone anywhere, right? Yes. Which is so exciting. She left yesterday for for everybody, mm-hmm. not just for you guys, for her too. Um, she's gone to a camp called Camp... Kodiak, yes, and it's in Ontario, Canada. And um, tell us about that experience a little bit. You know, like tell me just a, a little snippet about Camp Kodiak because I also like to give parents because there are some kids there from the United States as well. So I think it's uh, probably a half decent resource, at least for somebody to look up to know that there is a camp that exists like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Camp Kodiak, and it's a specialized camp that caters to kids between the ages of eight and eighteen that are diagnosed with or without, it does take mainstream kids, but um, learning disabilities. Developmentally delayed, I think. Neurologic, what was was it that we looked at? Neurologic, crap. Go ahead. I can't remember. (laughs) NLD. NLD. ADHD and uh, high-functioning Asperger's. Mm -hmm. Um, It is focused on social skills and teamwork. Uh, The minimum length of stay for any child is three weeks. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt here. The NLD, I had never heard of it either, and Julie was talking about it today, and when I looked up the camp, NLD was on there, and that's nonverbal learning disorder, which... um, uh, just basically says that they're highly verbal, with the areas of deficit being in the nonverbal domains. Not exactly sure what that looks like, but I can guess from yeah, experience. So I'm go not ahead. sure either. Um, so yes, we um, we dropped her off yesterday, and um, tell her how you tell them how you're feeling. Well, it's I'm, so bizarre to me. <laughs> I would I came in and I thought, oh my god, you know, I'm going to look at Julie. I said, Julie, you really, you look great. You really look relaxed because she's been so stressed in the last, well, six months for sure. Mm-hmm. And what is? How are you feeling? Well, I'm a mess. I'm, <laughs> I'm full of anxiety because I don't know what's happening, and I'm very concerned. Um, but whether or not she's fitting in and she's liking it and she's feeling safe and secure. Um, so, you know, I'm crazy when she's here and I'm crazy when she's not mm-hmm. really what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, give me just a general, cause this is the main thrust of this conversation with you guys is to make sure that there are people out there that are experiencing the same frustration, that same brick wall that you keep running into. 
Do you have an idea of how many hospital visits that you've been to? And tell us about the last one that you were on, even if it's briefly. Because um, that one kind of floored me. Because mm. um, I kept saying, okay, if the system isn't going to work for you, I had, you and I had a conversation, and I said, exhaust them. Mm. I said, keep calling the police, keep calling ambulance, keep calling coast. Uh, keep showing up and emerge. She'll end up with a rap sheet, and hopefully somebody will recognize that there is there is a real issue here. So if you can just give me an idea of what, how many visits you've had, do you think? Probably aren't that many because no. you because you try and keep them within your house. But tell us about the last hospital visit. Let's do that. Okay. Uh, last hospital visit uh, was um, July 1st, and Sophie woke up. Uh, that morning and we were not we we were not even out of our bed and she came into our room and she was threatening uh, she was threatening us she was threatening herself she was threatening the dog and we had been through this daily for a couple of weeks with many calls during that couple of weeks to coast and to the police so we said that's it we're going to the hospital so we all got ready we went and we made it through... And she was, for the first time, saying she would go, correct? Yes, she wanted to go. She, you know, she feels out of control, clearly, and very unstable. Um, so she very willingly went. We got through three layers of staff. We got through, you know, your triage, and then um, the emergency doctor, and then a mental health team which was a, a man and a woman and then finally a child psychiatrist which I guess sorry that's four layers and when we got to the child psychiatrist um, she clearly told us that we did not meet criteria uh, for an admission mm-hmm. and and I think a lot of this is because when Holly presents she presents so calm and composed and she's able to say you know I think she usually says I feel sad i I feel unhappy. It just—it's nuts. But so anyway, the um, child psychiatrist told us we did not meet the criteria for admission, and told us that we were going to be sent home, and that if um, things escalated again, we needed to use emergency services. And so off we went. Yeah, and then we had a conversation because I was sorry. It sounds awful. As a parent, I was lucky. Mm-hmm. My child overdosed on her meds on purpose, and that was my luck instead of yours, mm-hmm. which is what did, we had a conversation. I'm going to say it right out loud. You said apparently there's supposed to be some blood mm-hmm. before anything happens. And you know, that is, it, it makes me actually, my stomach starts to churn. It's sickening mm-hmm. that it is that that's what's happening. There's got to be something different that we can do in these cases. And I guess that's. I wanted to make sure that we covered that part because that is, I think it's just unacceptable. Apparently, you have to be have NORAD come after you, and you have to have a, a plane with 183 people that get turned around and a SWAT team that comes onto the, onto a plane before you get any kind of mental help here. It can't. The parents went to the hospital 23 times. I don't know how many times you went, Julie, but you went a lot mm-hmm. in the last six months. I don't know how many times it was, but you reached out for help um, a lot. Um, and I, I'm just, I reason, one of the reasons for this coming out is that I, I just, I can't, I don't know how we swallow it anymore as a society. It's just, it's not cool. By the way, I wanted to mention to you, I had a, an interview with a young woman, um, a while ago and she works, uh, for, I, I think I mentioned it to you, Workman Arts. 
I was gobsmacked because I had told her, she said, so why are you doing this? And this was after the interview process. And I said, well, because my daughter came out of the hospital. I was asking people, you know, is there a course? Is there, you know, other than a paid psychologist, is there somebody that I can go to to have a conversation about this? Somebody that can train me? I said, I am, I am a fish out of water here. I have no idea how to deal with this kid. I'm taking this kid home who is now diagnosed and on some medication but she'd been there for three weeks that doesn't mean she was stable she was still quite manic I said what the hell am I supposed to do with this kid somebody help me to help her and there was nothing and you know what she turned around and she goes well have you ever heard of such and such and I was like no she goes it's it's in Etobicoke which is if you know Toronto at all and you may not but that is probably I don't know 25 minutes from where I live probably 40 from where you live and I, I, it actually makes me mad every time this happens because somebody will give me a great resource and I'm like, where has that been? And I've been yapping for two years looking for stuff. So it's called, my gla- I don't have my glasses on so I can barely see. It's called Families Association for Mental Health Everywhere. And they have a few offices. Mm-hmm. You ever heard of them? Nope. See, unbelievable. Yeah. This is why this podcast and this available information is so important because I can't believe you haven't heard of it either. You've been through the system, rattled yeah. through. Uh, the main one is Etobicoke. The website is, just for everybody's anybody who's in the area that needs it, it's Fame for Families, F-A-M-E-4, F-O-R, Families, F-A-M-I-L-I-E-S.com. And that was given to me, and I was floored and a little perturbed, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest, because shouldn't that be something? You know what it is, I think, is that they won't refer if it's out of catchment. It's always... And it's ridiculous. Comes up over and over, over again. Over and over again, because we don't live in that jurisdiction. Sorry, right. catchment is another word for jurisdiction when you're in Canada or in, in the situation that we're in. In any case, okay, I wanted to cover one more thing, and that's... Um, uh, okay, we, we went through some of the episodes, but one of the things that I have read that can be helpful is to plan for episodes. Now, I know my daughter's bipolar. I think your daughter's uh, quite different, and I think it's a complex diagnosis, is my guess. Um, so I, I can't say, but she does seem to be a bit episodal, right? Yes. Yes. So they're talking about planning for an episode, and you know what? It totally makes sense. I'm thinking to myself, if, if I was in a car accident tomorrow, there there's nobody that would know what I know. Mm-hmm. At least you would have Ian. But what if the two of you, something happened, and you weren't able to get to her, and because of what happened to you, she went off into an episode. You'd be leaving her high and dry just like I'm leaving my daughter high and dry because I haven't written anything down. I'm so busy trying to keep up with some of the madness, excuse the pun, of what's happening. I haven't written down lately what her meds are, what um, where it is that she's being treated, who's treating her. Do you have any of that written down? I do have a story. See... Do you? I do. Okay, so where do you put it? Do you have a journal? I have journaled it all, but um, in the last, about a month ago after a visit to our GP, um, she said to me, you need a story. You need to have a story so that when you, if you have to go to the hospital again or you have to call 911, that you have a piece of paper which has dates and diagnoses and interventions and everything written down. So I do have a story. It's about two pages long. And if I ever need it, and I actually have it in the glove box of my car. Oh, see, that's smart. So if I have to, okay. it's there. Yeah, that's, 
Okay, so my bad. I'm I'm the guy who needs to get a girl. I just wanted to ask from another parent's perspective because I feel like sometimes I'm so busy trying to keep up with what's going on. I don't know. I just I haven't done it. So that, let that be a lesson to me and to anybody else that's listening that hasn't written that down. My daughter's also a little bit older, and she's very in very in control of her own uh, health care. She participates in her own rescue a lot, does a lot of her own appointments. Um, but that's no excuse for me not being able to write that down so that if something did happen to me, that at least they'd know who the safe person was that might be able to talk her down. Um, they'd know who it is that they need to talk to at the hospital because right now she's actually in an outpatient uh, care uh, situation through our local hospital because she never got a an adult psychiatrist. Oh, and on the side before we end then, I'm going to say that. Be careful. In Canada, there is an age restriction when it is that they go from being looked after from a psychiatrist. There's a child psychiatrist, and then there's they go into the adult system. And my daughter was very stable at 18. And so when she transferred uh, in between those ages of going into the adult system, we kept talking about it, and I kept saying, yeah, we have to do that. And we did have our name on one list at one point, but she had an episode within six months of turning what was it? She's 20 now. Six months of turning 19, which I think is the capped off age for them to see a child psychiatrist. And we were left with nothing. And that is not cool. I was very lucky that they had just started this outpatient psychiatric unit at my local hospital. Otherwise, I'm not really sure what would have happened. It wouldn't have been praised. She probably would have been in the, we would have been in and out of emerge with whatever doctor was on call. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just so that you know, make sure you look after that like a year before it is. I'm not, not talking to you specifically, but everybody in general, a year before they turn of age, and then that way you, you know that you're not going to be left because that would not be cool. The gentleman that we, the doctor that we deal with now. Is, Excellent. I'm very, very glad that it's him. But um, is there anything else that you wanted to cover? Is there anything else that you wanted to say in your interview, Julie, that we haven't covered? Oh, please give me, uh, remember that conversation we were having about the, there's a blog that it is that you uh, are active on. It, it's an online support group. It's uh, conduct conductdisorders.com. And it is a place where you can post and receive um, support and advice, and I have found it to be very, very helpful. Uh, sometimes it gives me great hope where you read success stories, and then sometimes it gives me great fear because there is um, a lot of people who don't have a happy story to tell. But um, it's always good to know that you're not alone and to receive some support and some advice from and it's really from people all over the world. There's people in Morocco and the United States and all over the world that are posting there. Okay, cool. Okay, Julie, we'll sign off for now. Uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your honesty. I appreciate your courage to be able to come out and tell your story. And uh, I know there are people on the other end that are listening and appreciating uh, that as well. So um, you guys stay amazing, and uh, we'll talk to you next episode. We're actually on number nine, by the way. And I don't know if you guys can tell, but it's getting a little more comfortable. It doesn't feel so foreign to be leaning into a microphone and having a conversation with uh, somebody. So um, thanks, everyone, for listening. And please review our podcast on iTunes. This will help us spread our message and reach all those who need some support. Hey, everyone, don't forget to follow Different From The Other Kids on Facebook and Twitter. Check out our book on Amazon. See you next week. And now a disclaimer. 
In general, I, Angela Sunis, am not a doctor, and I certainly don't play one on the internet. I am not even that well educated. I'm a parent, period. The advice from me presented on different from the other kids does not replace advice received directly from a medical health professional. If you think you need help, I do recommend making an appointment with your physician or other appropriate health care provider. Thanks for listening to Different From The Other Kids, made possible with the support of Deborah Kenny Jewelry, jewelry meant to inspire. You can find them online at www.debrakennyjewelry.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Different From The Other Kids, Season 1, a production of Marketing Maven.